This episode is sponsored by a donor to the Chinese Culture Foundation of San Francisco. The foundation was founded in 1965 and opened its primary program site, the Chinese Culture Center, or CCC, in 1973. CCC is one of the leading and most prominent cultural and arts institutions in the city of San Francisco. The mission of the CCC is dedicated to elevating underserved communities and giving voice to equality through education and contemporary art. Their work is based in Chinatown and San Francisco's open and public spaces and other art institutions. Visit cccsf.us. On this episode, we have Anima Kosai. Anima studied law in both the UK and Malaysia. From an early age, she adopted a doctrine of advocating for social justice. After serving in a law firm and being in-house counsel for large oil and gas concerns, she decided to pursue her passion. In recent years, she has become a strong advocate for whistleblowers, victims of sexual harassment, and others who are marginalized based on following the right path. She has founded a group called Speak Up at Work. Anima, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for inviting me, Asim. It's really Glad great, to be here. great to have you on. Um, so uh, you were born and raised in Malaysia. Share with us about that. Which city? Well, not quite. No, no, I was uh, born okay. in London. <laughs> oh, you were? Okay, I didn't pick up yeah, on so that. Apologies. Well, yeah, so I was, I, was, I was born in London, and um, my, my late father uh, was Malaysian, and my mom is uh, British. Um, I see. So I grew up... Um, in, in, in the UK and then when I was about seven moved over to Kuala Lumpur and lived went to school there lived most of my life there worked there um, and it's only recently that I've returned um, to the UK so it's like we always used to joke that I had two kampongs so kampongs are like your hometown yes, um, nice. um, so you know most, most people you know during the long holidays would Balik Kampung, which means go back to the hometown in Malay, and to, to, to them it's like, oh, Balik Kampung is going, Anima is going back to England. You right. know, that sort yeah. of thing. That's so yeah. interesting. Do you, uh, do you have siblings? Yes, I have a sister oh. who lives here as well in, okay. in the UK. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, and mm-hmm. she also had a similar experience being born in London and then moving back yeah so she was born here too um and then um went to school in malaysia but i think she went she came back here a lot um sooner and she um she worked here whereas i worked um in malaysia so um she's probably had a more british upbringing and for me it's very hard to um i guess i i live multicultural so while i live in london uh, a lot of focus a lot of focus is on food you know i mean like um, do I get good Asian food? And when I say Asian, I, I don't necessarily mean just sort of South Indian because Malaysia is a is huge melting pot. So we have a mix of Indian food, we have Malay food, we have Thai food, we have um, Chinese food, um, and even sort of this Portuguese mix uh, as well. So there's a there's a very rich food culture in Malaysia. And so anyone who's come from Malaysia, and especially if they're living overseas in the West, food is a big deal. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, we struggle to find those restaurants uh, yeah. elsewhere, but it's a challenge. You don't really find the authenticity. I, I can't find good Luxa here in uh, Los Angeles. Well, I, I can't say this. I mean, it's the same in the UK. So you end up, uh, and this is the experience from the Malaysian diaspora, is they end up becoming really good cooks because it's hard to find. <laughs> 
you know, you, you, you know, all this, you know, I used to think it was very difficult to make, you know, things like laksa and so on. And I found, yeah, it's not that difficult when you have the right ingredients. So okay. it's a discovery. So at this age, I'm finally learning to really cook Malaysian food. When you're living in Malaysia, you don't have to. It's so That's easy right. to buy. It's so easy to get. Yeah. 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 Okay. So uh, as most Malaysians, you're a, a foodie. Nice to hear. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if you, since you have Singapore roots, we can definitely have a debate, but we won't go there. <laughs> no, I will just chuckle and uh, <laughs> be a, a, an observer uh, of that debate. Um, so I, I'm very curious, Anima, what, what attracted you to study law? Were there certain experiences you had growing oh, up? I think, well, I think it's, a, it's just a sense of... of justice and fairness and uh, my friends always joke you know I'm out to save the world and I still am um, so I think that's that's really what led me to law that uh, I felt like uh, whatever I felt was unfair in the world I would do something about it so and, and that's how a lot of law students end mm. up doing law and then of course you become a lawyer and discover no it's not like that at all you don't get to save the world you don't get those gritty cases in fact you could be <laughs> lumped with something really boring and mundane. Um, and it's uh, the, the journey in a law firm in itself is, is quite an interesting experience, you know. Um, and I think it's an incredibly good grounding um, in a sense of getting structure, of understanding your rights. And I think for me as well, um, Actually, you know, people talk about privilege in terms of gender or color, I think even profession. And um, uh, I now know how privileged I was as a lawyer, because all I had to do, if I was just stopped on the road by a police officer, just to say I'm a lawyer, and they go, oh, okay, and wave me on, because they just didn't want, you know, we were incredible privilege, right? Mm. Um, and even to introduce myself, um, I never got a, a neutral response when people asked what I did. I'd say lawyer, and it was always one of, you know, um, and, and, and that's, that in itself is really interesting in that it's an intimidating profession. I mean, mm. you intimidate people. Um, and I enjoyed that, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> it really builds, it really stokes the ego in you. And I think that was part of my journey as well, you know, as a lawyer and then my career after that. Did you, were there any members of your family who practiced law? Your, no. no. <laughs> okay. I was the first one, yes. Oh, interesting. Um, I'm just always curious about this. Were there any experiences you had, anything you witnessed, or a world event even that made you feel like, wow, I want to fight for this justice? That's a really good question. No, it's probably TV shows more than anything. I mean, um, I grew up watching Paper Chase. That probably explains how old I am. And then L.A. Law. <laughs> okay, L.A. Law, yes. By the time the other shows came around, I was already in practice. Um, yeah. But that, that really kind of, you know, was like, oh, yeah, I want to I do that. I want to go to law school, experience Paper Chase. I want to be a lawyer, you know, be, you know, like in L.A. Law in a swanky office. And actually, in a sense, I did. I did experience some of those. I think the only difference is that all those courtroom dramas, they're not like that in real life. <laughs> the legal process is so much slower. Yes, there's a tedium and, to it that you yes. don't capture on screen. <laughs> yes. So uh, your initial study of law was in Malaysia, and then you did an LLM in the UK? 
Yes, so I did uh, my master's uh, in the University of Nottingham in international law, um, and that included environmental law, human rights, so there's a, um, an EU law, or EEC in those days. So um, I'm a big proponent of the EU, and I thought, yes, you know, everything I learned from there would help, you know, um, in terms of when I return um, to Malaysia as well, um, giving it a sort of international perspective. I was very drawn to international law, international conflict, human rights, those areas. And so that was the intent when you went to the UK to study, you were going to return back to practice. Oh yes, and I did. Um, so I practiced in just under 10 years in Malaysia. So I was in a number of firms, but primarily in um, Zaidi Bahim Co, which is today the largest firm in Malaysia. It's also one of the biggest regional firms, if you don't count the international ones. Um, and um, it was a fantastic experience because I specialized um, ultimately in privatization, okay. um, in, um, I'll call it privatization projects, technology. So at the time that I was practicing technology law, there was the big convergence of the internet, multimedia together with, you know, the, the more traditional telecommunications. So um, that in itself was, was in, in Malaysia, it was actually, Malaysia was one of the, the countries at the time with cutting edge laws when it came to technology. Mm. Um, not many people are aware of that. Conver we call it convergence laws. Okay. Um, so I had some, you know, um, my clients tended to be the big telcos and, and, and those kind of companies. And it was an exciting time. Yeah. Nice. Well, that region has also taken the lead on, uh, more recently, in cryptocurrency law and mm -hmm. interpretation, and so uh, that's uh, it's, it's far easier to uh, to, to uh, engage in those business activities there than it is here. <laughs> well, I mean, on that note as well, I mean, a lot of um, I was involved in legal reform as well, advising the government at the time in terms of you know making changes to various laws. As, as technology and so on progressed. So um, it, it's, it's exciting when you're involved in legal reform because you really get to see how policy is shaped. The other area I was looking at was uh, energy and utilities. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, and you were looking to privatize energy and utility companies in some of your work? Oh, that was, had already happened. Um, and it was more in terms of um, looking at the industry itself um, in terms of its competitiveness, whether it worked, you know, breaking monopolies and, and that sort of thing. So something that was more sort of ultimately good for the consumer as well. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of people are not quite aware of how progressive Malaysia can be when it comes to, to laws. And, um, and I tell people in other countries, oh, you know, Malaysia has this law, they're quite surprised. Um, um, because it's not seen as a Western, but I think because we were learning, because we were open to seeing what other countries did, I mean, it was incredible learning about how other countries um, were tackling certain issues. So when I talked about energy, we were also looking at how California energy's laws worked as well in terms of electricity distribution and supply. Well, I remember for a long period of time, there was a fair amount of focus on tech and tech investment. Mm. And I think it was right around this time of these convergence laws. Uh, even a funny anecdote, I remember um, a few times that I've been to Kuala Lumpur, landing at the airport 
and you're taking some time to get downtown and you're passing by a lot of farmland so you can't help but ask the question couldn't the airport have been closer but i understood that there was a, a large tech park that was uh, had been earmarked uh, well, we called it yes the multimedia super corridor i mean that was the dream of the the Prime Minister at the time, and he was actually recently the Prime Minister again, uh, Dr. Mahadeh. Um, so, because he had this, this big vision for the country in terms of, you know, Malaysia being a, a developed nation uh, by 2020, and we're actually in 2020 now. And there's a whole, and I think this builds up to also the history of where I am now, why I am, uh, the, what I'm doing now, is what happened after he, he uh, was no longer Prime Minister and some of the things that are happening in Malaysia, primarily around corruption and mismanagement. And um, so how that unfolded, and that kind of was a sort of like a, a big burning issue for me, um, which is where I am today, but I'm sure we'll get to that point. Yes, no, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, after being with the law firm, uh, Zaid Ibrahim, you uh, worked as general counsel at uh, Schlumberger? Well, I was legal counsel at Slumberger and then general counsel at another company, uh, Cherry Valley Hess, which is half Petronas, half Hess, which is an American uh, oil, oil company. Um, so I, I was with in legal practice for just under 10 years, and then I joined the oil and gas industry, um, which was another, you know, absolutely new um, uh, adventure, I'd say, because it, it's just like a whole new world opened. And when I share stories from the oil and gas industry, people who've never been in the industry, they're, they're absolutely surprised. I mean, there, that's where I learned about leadership. That's where I learned about, um, for example, one of the big areas I look at today are areas of uh, sexual harassment, harassment and workplace bullying. These are things, um, policies and training that I learned at in, while in the oil and gas industry and implemented them as well. Um, and I found the industry to be very, very open to um, to cultural change. And people are surprised when I say that, because oh, sure. um, it was an industry that takes um, safety very seriously. It takes quite a number of issues. Very, they, they, they listen to feedback. And again, a lot of people are surprised when I tell them that, that really? <laughs> They see it as a as a as an old-fashioned, you know, uh, industry in certain ways. But imagine I, me as a lawyer, and lawyers have a certain mindset uh, in certain areas. Suddenly thrown into a world full of engineers, primarily engineers, who have a very different uh, way of looking at things. And and absolutely, I mean, adore engineers. I mean, it it, it was nothing can be more stark. I mean, I didn't even have to dress up to go to work anymore, you know, compared to being with a law firm. Sure. Um, uh, you didn't feel the need to perform as much when you're in the oil and gas industry. I felt more comfortable being myself. It's quite funny in that sense, given that uh, I was one of the few women in management, whereas in a law firm, it's a bit more equitable yeah. in that sense. Um, but I found that I could come into myself, people would listen to me because, oh, it's the lawyer. When you're a lawyer among lawyers, you know, lawyers just love the sound of their own voice. <laughs> um, but engineers are incredibly, um, incredibly respectful and very, very rule abiding to a large extent, right? Whereas lawyers look for ways around 
move mm -hmm. because that's how we're trained and that's how we have to support, you know, sometimes advise clients. Um, you know, um, it's with engineers, it, you know, in the oil and gas industry, it's all about compliance. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that it's 100%. Otherwise, why would you even need lawyers and you know, auditors right. and so on? Right. But um, it's, it, the mindset was really different because I said, said safety is very important. And therefore, to not comply could mean that someone might die. Sure. That that's the consequence. You don't feel that when you're in a law firm. You're a bit removed. Yeah. Um, but when you're you're in uh, an industry where you really see what's going on at, on at the ground level, um, you're very aware of how decisions uh, can actually be playing God in a sense. Yeah. You know, you something you say or something you decide upon can actually ultimately um, result in someone staying safe or someone dying you know so yeah so what was no it's absolutely fascinating um was it some of those safety issues that came up that sort of sparked your um interest in um speak up at work speak up yeah so safety really inspired me and and and, and this is why when i first joined i mean I, and i know he's no problem me sharing the story when i first joined slumberger i had this wonderful HSC, QHSC manager, quality, health, safety, and environment. So he was my peer. And we were getting to massive arguments because, you know, he had this tagline um, when he signed off emails, you know, all accidents are preventable. You know, lawyers were trained to look at, yeah. <laughs> there's no such thing as an absolute <laughs> sentence. There must, be a, there must be an exception to it. And I said, no, 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 some, some are really accidents. You know, you can't prevent all accidents. And we'd have these big debates. And it was really interesting. <laughs> they had this, they had this contraption called the convincer. So I'll give you an example. Um, and this was about driving because one of the things Slumberger discovered because you know they took safety obviously very seriously, and they wanted to look at you know um, rates in terms of you know if anyone had if there were any fatality, injury, and so on. I mean that's across the industry. All companies in the oil and gas industry really track this big time. And what Slumberger discovered is the highest risk area wasn't actually offshore on a platform. It was while you were driving. <laughs> so it was road. So the, the, the journey management policy was very, very important. And so there was this contraption called the convincer, which is essentially, you know, what happens if you don't wear a seatbelt and you're in a car? You think you're driving slowly, like, I don't know, 20 miles an hour. That's slow, right? Um, um, but you can even die. Um, if you are actually a force hits you. So, so what they did is you get strapped up in this convincer with a seatbelt and basically you're, you're, you're at this force as if you're traveling like 20 miles an hour and then you just whack into this wall or whatever it is, right? And then you're just thrown forward. And the point of the convincer is to convince you to wear seatbelts. Right. <laughs> it isn't so much about there's a law that tells you or the rule tells you to yeah. do it. It is for you to really understand why you do it. And this, this, this is the underlying culture of, the sa of safety culture in the oil and gas industry. And I was very often looking at things from a you know, compliance and ethics perspective, like business ethics, conflicts of interest, you know, can I accept a gift? Can I accept entertainment from the client? And all those kind of questions. You know, I'd go there, do PowerPoint slides, and see everybody sort of standing there going, mm, oh, God, you just listen to the lawyer. 
you're not convincing them. They just know, well, those are the rules. We can't accept gifts over a certain amount because that would be considered unethical. Uh, it's not illegal. It's unethical according to the, the, the company rules. But, but I wanted to go deeper. Like, I didn't want people to feel they were forced to obey the rules or think like these are stupid rules and not bother because that can happen too, right? But to really understand why the rules were there in the first place. So I found that the the safety um, uh, culture and the attitude um, of people towards safety is like really people understood. Some one of my um, speak up uh, uh, advisors um, members looks at you know he he runs this hearts and safe sorry hearts and minds program uh, actually uh, in Malaysia and. And that's really what it's about. It's about converting hearts and minds. So people do it because they believe in it, mm. not because there's a rule that says Controlled they have to, to. follow it. Yeah. So it's going yeah. beyond mere compliance. So um, one of the things, is, 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 the, the story um, is that um, we were rolling out a harassment-free workplace policy, and it's very hard for people. You know, you're going to tell them things like, you know, don't sexually harass somebody or or, or don't do something that humiliates someone, don't offend them in the workplace. And people come to me and say, what, you mean I can't crack jokes? You're, you're, you know, you're, you're, I, I have freedom of speech because they all knew my human rights background, right? They're like, you're curbing my freedom of speech mm -hmm. and they, they throw all this my way. And then something big happened in the world. Um, and that was uh, Deepwater Horizon in the Gulf of Mexico, um, the, the big BP um, oil spill. 11 men were killed and that happened the very week we rolled out our policy and we were doing the training for the first batch which included you know very senior people in the, in the company and um you know i remember when we first rolled out the training everybody looked really sort of like oh why are we here that that sort of thing and one of um, one of my drilling colleagues on the drilling team, and they were really, really focused on what, what had happened in the Gulf of Mexico. It, it was scary for all of us because as the industry, we thought, you know, we're, we're good with safety. You know, we don't have a problem, yeah, but yeah. it still happens, you know. So what, what went wrong there? And it, it was really interesting. Um, in this training that we were doing, this two-day training, people really resented me for that because I said, no, you have to do this. Um, and um, one of the things was they had to role play a harassment scenario, okay. right? So one very senior guy, he pretended to be what we call a tool pusher, which is somebody who works uh, on the rig. Um, and then there was another guy uh, from our drilling team who was playing basically his boss, who was like, oh, you know, ordering around, you do that, and using a whole lot of F words and stuff like that. And the the... The tool pusher is trying to tell him, no, no, this is not safe. And the other guy was sort of yelling at him and saying, this is role play, yeah? <laughs> yelling at him and saying, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years, you know, mm. I know what I'm doing, who are you to question me? And, and I think all of us watching it, it's almost like the penny dropped, like, oh my God, if people are bullied, it's yeah. a safety issue. Yeah. Right um, now, I'm not saying that happened um, necessarily in Deepwater Horizon, but it's because it was in our consciousness, it was so strong um, that what stops someone speaking up, what stops someone sort of saying, "Stop! This is dangerous!" Right? right. Um, because if they don't speak up, someone could die. I mean, 
it, literally that is the the ultimate consequence right um a lot of us think of money but really the worst case scenario people die and i mean in in the world today when you're looking at covid19 that is so in your face at the moment right you don't speak up you don't say hey we don't have enough ppe and for example in hospitals someone is going to die uh and that's 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 how it is and when i say you know as playing God, because we're ma- as leaders, if we're making decisions which hurt people, people die. So ultimately, I mean, this is really what drove me to looking at Speak Up. It started out with a safety angle. And then I mentioned, you know, what was happening in Malaysia with the corruption. Again, I would be giving, you know, my, my, my ethics talks. This is the uh, 1MDB? Yes, <laughs> 1MDB. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're in California, so you might be um, more aware of it than many people um, in the U.S. Because I think that's where some of the parties took place, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> in Hollywood, in Las Vegas, um, and um, it, it what was going on in Malaysia is that um, many people were afraid to speak up, especially if you worked in, for example, this, it, with the government, um, or if you worked in certain companies. For example, if you worked in One MDB. Yeah. And you were aware of the situation. It wasn't just, it wasn't just um, these companies. It was the banks as well. I mean, there are quite a number of banks now that have been implicated. Um, if you look at uh, the papers that came out of the Department of Justice, um, we had Deutsche Bank. We had a couple of Malaysian banks. Of course, the investment bank, uh, Goldman Sachs itself, um, handled a number of bond issuances where money had been siphoned out with the knowledge of some of the executives of Goldman Sachs. So, um, and interestingly, I actually had a conversation with one of the Swiss bankers um, some years later, um, who was um, very worried about this. But again, there was this issue of, do I lose my job? And just to speak to, you know, the finance industry, you, you know, with issues like money laundering and so on. And, and there's, there's a big, big push in terms of compliance for, for banks to follow my, um, uh, AML anti-money laundering rules. Um, they are very aware of that, but sometimes there's still that fear to speak up oh, and yes. say this is happening. And we've all heard of cases where some, some people in banks did try doing that. Uh, they blew the whistle. So one of one of my friends who is now also with um, the Speak Up Academy now, I'll speak to more, more to that now, was a big whistleblower mm. based in London, but for a, a US bank okay. uh, where drug money out of Mexico was laundered into the US. Um, he was ultimately fired. His name is Martin Woods. Um, and he blew the whistle on 20, billions, 20 billion pounds worth wow. of money uh, being laundered. But, um, he really paid paid the price, right? He was sort of blacklisted from the industry. And when people see this, um, people in finance see this, it's very scary. Um, I know bankers in Singapore who were expats who also dare not speak up because if they do, not only do they lose their job, they have to leave the country because you're relying on your work permit. And when from, you know, your family is based there, they go to school there, it's not that easy. So, 
when I talk about speak up, I'm talking about, you know, speak up for people um, who are sometimes senior executives themselves and they're caught in that kind of bind. But just coming back to where I was, I know I'm jumping ahead. No, no, Seeing the, the corruption, uh, the extent of the corruption and the fear that people have in Malaysia really drove me. And the ultimate was when the prime minister at the time, Najib Razak, who himself, you know, he's, uh, he's um, on trial for over 40 charges in, in Malaysia um, in a mix of money laundering, tax evasion, and um, CBT, corruption, right? Um, he basically started harassing, and he fired his attorney general. I see. Right? Mm. He was actually about to arrest him. Um, he also fired his deputy, the deputy prime minister, because he questioned him about the 1MDB uh, case. And he also harassed um, the Malaysian Anti-Corruption Commission heads and officers as well. And um, I was so angry at that time. I actually got a group of civil society people together. We actually stood on the steps of the MACC, the Malaysian Anti-Corruption Commission, um, and we, we gave a press conference. We met wow. with the officers of the commission and we gave a press conference saying, you know, we as civil society um, feel that it is absolutely wrong for um, the top member of the executive, the prime minister, to be interfering with an independent regulator, right, the Anti-Corruption Commission, uh, from doing its job. But it's clear why. I mean, we, we all knew why. And with hindsight, it's very clear that he wanted them to drop the investigation against him. Yeah, of course. And um, so I suppose that's how Speak Up was formed, this, this wow. awareness that people were afraid um, and there needed to be safe space for people to be able to bring up issues of wrongdoing um, so that they would be heard in action, you know, whatever issue they raised would be taken, whether yeah. it's from the perspective of safety, commercial crime like fraud, corruption, money laundering, or issues, you know, which are a bit more personal, like sexual harassment and bullying and discrimination. Well, and some of the other examples that you um, have on your um, profile, uh, the, the, the uh, Olympic gymnast and, and Dr. Nasser, yeah. that situation, the, yeah. the Volkswagen uh, diesel uh, yes. representation. Yeah, these were all, I mean, um, in terms of the Olympic gymnasts, actually, so these young teenagers, um, they did, many of them did speak up, right? Mm. But this is it, and this is, this is the thing when you look at the issue of power dynamics. A lot of people look at, you know, some, you know, 15 year old girl, oh, she's hormonal, you know, she's, she's saying this about this established, you know, reputable doctor, and they would not believe a 15 year old girl yeah, against, uh, you know, and, and, and this needs to change. And that's also why, you know, Me Too came up because yeah. um, women who had experienced uh, suffered sexual harassment had not been heard. They'd not been heard by their employers. They, the only other outlet they could find was hashtag Me Too on social that's media. Right. Yeah. Because their own employers were not listening to them. No, not protecting them either. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you relocated to London full-time. Uh, yes. What year was that? 2017. 2017, yeah. Okay. So share with us about uh, Speak Up at Work, um, how many people you have involved and the type of activities that uh, you're engaged in. 
Well, first of all, it was just like, oh, it's just a brand concept. You know, I, I, I had a really, really a stressful job. It was very consuming. I needed to take time out. I wanted to write. I wanted to sort of explore this whole speak up idea. So I did a lot of writing and a bit of speaking as well. And eventually I was like, yeah, there's more to this. I mean, I need to take this bigger. And just recently, in fact, uh, this year, uh, a number of us came together. So, I mean, I have, for example, my co-founder who's in the US, uh, Dr. Kernan Mannion, he's a psychiatrist by background. Um, we, we founded the Speak Up Academy and we've brought together, I would say, I call them thought leaders. I mean, some of these are um, really big names of people from around the world primarily um, the US, uh, UK, Europe, and um, Asia, to sort of look at different aspects of speaking up, whether we're looking at the world of corruption and commercial crime, whether we're looking at the world of sexual harassment and bullying, looking at the world of safety. So I actually do have experts in these different areas. And what we're doing is, we, uh, we call it a sort of like a, sandbox, if you will, or community of very, very passionate people who are coming together to have conversations about this and solve the problems. I mean, these problems are huge, but what we're like looking at doing is, okay, an organization at a time, yeah. right? Um, and um, we're about to go public quite soon, public as in being known, not right. listening, <laughs> um, um, in that we will be uh, offering support and courses and so on. So at the moment, we're very much in deep, intense formation stage right. in terms of the courses that, that we're offering. So I can already say, I mean, at the moment, we've, um, we've just successfully ended, <laughs> just before this call, a pilot um, on um, speak up for leaders. Now, this mm. might be, you know, most people think, oh, it's the workers who need to speak up. But actually, it the people find it the hardest to speak up and really say what they believe in tends to be the leaders yeah. in organizations. When I say leaders, it could be board members, CEOs, senior executives, right. and so on, mm -hmm. middle management or heads of, you know, heads of uh, divisions like compliance and legal. They need a lot of support as well. So we've been running, um, we call it the evolving leaders uh, circles. Um, especially for now, so it's a safe space where, where leaders can just be themselves yeah. and not think that they're, you know, out of this overwhelm and pressure that they're facing at the moment, um, that they have that space, a safe space to be themselves and help, you know, reconnect with what's really important and how they bring that out into their organizations. So there's that, yeah. the leaders circle. Um, we've also got courses that we will soon be offering in terms of fraud. Um, yeah in terms of sexual harassment um, and there's others coming up as well. So it was right. a very exciting time. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. And so your clients will be organizations that would like to have their employees participate in yes, the training. Yes. Okay. Yes. And we, we, yeah. So, you know, it, employees, we're really, really geared towards change makers. So people yeah. who themselves want to make a difference in their organizations and be supportive while they do it. So our, our um, we're not a typical online course. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of um, conversation and support that goes along with it. A lot of exchange, it's very community uh, focused. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you mentioned you have a partner in New York. So will it be global? Oh, your uh, he's in he's in Massachusetts actually. Um, oh, sorry. Yes, it is. It is global. Okay. Um, so it's a really incredible diverse team that we have, men and women, and and people from around the world, and <laughs> different accents. That's what I love. I mean, I had someone from. <laughs> Uh, uh, pa Panama the other day saying to this 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 lady in Scotland, oh, I love your accent. And I thought that's the beauty of it, you know, um, that people in different parts of the world are hearing each other. Um, and I think one of the things of being in lockdown is that, you know, ironically, the whole world has opened up in that sense, that yeah. it is easy for many of us in various time zones and, you know, to, to connect. And what I what I love is, you know, so for example, people in oil and gas sharing their stories and people in finance listening and going, oh, healthcare, right? Yes, healthcare, especially right, listening right. and going, oh my God, I didn't know you could do that. Really? We want to learn from you. And then we have people, you know, in, in uh, primarily in Malaysia, because that's where I'm from, who are, you know, sharing certain stories and people in the U.S. going, wow, really? You know, mm. it, so it, re it really opens up um, um, a world view um, yeah. that many of us um, don't experience. Um, yeah. I, I learn so much from, you know, because we have very regular calls on different topics. And um, I feel uplifted almost on a daily basis because, you know, whenever I join a call, it's like, wow, this is incredible. Nice. So it, it's uplifting, especially in a time when many people feel obvious reasons kind of down so, yeah no, absolutely. people enjoy these calls actually yeah yeah well i think it's a uh, very important significant work you're doing i wish you all the best on that i, I did want to chat a little bit about um what appear to be nonprofits that you're involved with um surya women and uh, oh, also right. an organization mm -hmm. to address the the haze the seasonal haze that we get in southeast oh, okay. asia yeah, Surya Woman is a, is an old group, and um, we're not very active at the moment. But we formed oh my god, it was 2012. A group of us women in in Kuala Lumpur who were frustrated that why aren't women getting ahead of their careers? And a month later, Cheryl Sandberg uh, launched uh, her Lean In book, and we just embraced that. Mm -hmm. So it was all about you know helping working women empower themselves. Um, and funnily enough, actually, the people who got empowered most were ourselves. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> we were though. forced to we were forced to lean in and say yes to everything when our natural selves might have gone. Oh no, I'm not good enough for that. But because of, <laughs> we had to, you know, we had to practice what we preach. So it was incredible oh. in terms of our own journeys as a result of that. And then um, the haze. Um, uh, this is a group called Shira, which in Malay means uh, bright, um, mm -hmm. uh, clear skies. Um, and because um, there is what is, sometimes it's nearly every year there would be this deep, this, this haze that would envelop much part of Southeast Asia, specifically Malaysia and Singapore, and the little bits of Indonesia as well, um, due to the, the forest fires um, that would be happening there and slash and burn. Um, things that are going on. So, so a group of, you know, a civil society got together. Yeah, I kind of kick-started that. So I brought together people who I knew were, you know, a mix of lawyers and, you know, um, scientists and ac academicians and economists and, you know, people who dealt with consumers, bringing them all to, and people from industry and bringing them together and like, you know, how do we solve this? I mean, I think this is my typical approach to problems is, mm. well, 
there's the problem. How do we solve it? Okay, we need to get the right kind of people in the room and they tend to be from very different disciplines, which is what I've done with Speak Up Academy as well. Um, and then um, another group that I kickstarted, um, which did some incredible work, um, was when we discovered in Malaysia there were there were some high profile pedophile cases. So we looked oh, at, um, you know, I brought together a group of, they all turned out to be women in the end, but incredible group of passionate women about um, uh, sort of training adults, mainly parents and teachers, other people had contact with children in terms of recognizing the signs yeah, sorry, of uh, child sexual abuse and the do's and don'ts and a lot of mistakes that parents tend to make not realizing that they are disempowering their own children yeah. over you know uh, bodily uh, um, autonomy right so uh culturally yes you must always you must always hug a relative and you know that sometimes can be quite dangerous so yes. so you know educating people um along those lines uh so i think i'm a bit of a fire starter or yes. <laughs> in a sense <laughs> like really oh there's a problem let's let's do something about it <laughs> um and um and i think it's the same approach that i brought up to brought to you know speak up at work and speak yeah. up academy where i see that we have some incredible brains around the world in their different disciplines and i ask the question what if we you know all got together and let's let's try and solve this in this context in this context and and um an experiment you know yeah. um with what works what doesn't but more than anything i think it's that sense of community because a lot of people have felt these experts have felt very isolated sometimes mm -hmm. yeah. and um when they they see that there's a bunch, you know, there's a tribe that, that's trying to make this work, especially if they're in countries where they might be the only one, it, it really makes a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you're certainly a catalyst for change, <laughs> which is phenomenal. Um, in the last uh, minute or two that we have, um, uh, share with us about Leadership Redesigned, the Lisa Barnwell ah. uh, um, webinar series that you've been involved with. Yes, I know Lisa for a couple of years now. We're both part of, um, I'd say, the Feminine Power Corporate Group. Um, and one of the inquiries we had was about bringing the feminine qualities, which are present not just in women, but also in men, and allowing that to be acceptable in the workplace, in the corporate world. So when, you know, when she came up with this notion of leadership redesign, especially now, right, when the traditional leadership doesn't seem to be quite working, we were looking at, you know, what are other aspects of leadership which are so important for people to be, to be carrying that have been ignored for so, so long? A lot of it is coming from women um, and, all the, the more need for diversity, right? Yes, um, and in senior positions that you have women alongside men. So as I'm concerned, we don't reach equality until it's 50-50, right? I don't right. believe in 30%. Right. <laughs> when people no, tell me quotas, you know, people tell me, well, quotas shouldn't work. And I said, absolutely, because I, if, if we had a pure meritocracy, you would see far more women in leadership positions yeah, than there are today. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I spoke about listening, um, the, the need for leaders to sometimes just sit back and listen, because that's a crucial 
speak up element when people speak up there's no point speaking up if no one is listening yeah and it needs to be the leaders who are listening listening to their people especially absolutely absolutely well into your earlier comment uh california passed a law saying that boards uh boards of corporations need to have female representation Um, but you're right that's still a far cry from 50 50. (laughs) so we, we there's more work that needs to be done yeah. Anyway, thank you so much. Really appreciate your insight, your wisdom. Appreciate all the work that you do at uh, Speak Up at Work and Speak Up Academy and uh, look forward to that being rolled out. Thank you so much, Asim, for your time as well and for having me here. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive and Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.